Thank you, ladies, and encourage you all to please take your Bibles again and turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Again, it's good to see you all out this morning. Good to greet many of you last night and to renew acquaintances. I'm trying to remember names as best I can. I've forgotten several, but I'm doing my best. And uh, trust we'll get a talk over the next number of days. It is a joy to be here. Again, I'm thankful for the invitation to come along. It's a somewhat terrifying joy. I'd forgotten really how many people come here on the Lord's Day morning. Uh, so it is good to see you in the Lord's house. And may God bless our hearts together. Thank you for your prayers for the work in Malvern. I just mentioned that again at this time. We do appreciate that very much. I know people uh, will say to me that you've been praying for us over there uh, six and a half years now, uh, laboring in the pulpit uh, there. And God's been gracious. Uh, the work has stabilized. And yes, there's been ups and downs and challenges at times. Uh, but we've certainly known God's help over the last number of years. Continue to pray for us that we'd see uh, God moving, particularly in our local area. That's our burden. Uh, we have people travel a distance to come to the work of God. And the real burden of our hearts is that God would move in our locality. Uh, in so doing, we'd see then a, a children's work developing, other outreach efforts uh, brought to the glory of God. So please do pray for that if you remember us in prayer. But Jonah chapter 1, let's again read the entire chapter uh, this morning, uh, looking to the Lord to bless the public reading of his word. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken." Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the side of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, for we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. And then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? And what is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven which had made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea wrought them as tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. 
For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. May God bless the public reading of his word again to your hearts this morning. Let's pray. Let's call upon the Lord together. Seek God's face. I'm so thankful for the prayer meetings for this conference. It's such an encouragement to know that this meeting has been prayed over. But you pray right now. Pray for God to speak to you directly. Address your soul from his precious word. Let's all pray together. Eternal God, we come before thee again, humbly and reverently. Very mindful, Lord, that Blessing in this meeting only comes from your gracious hand. All of our efforts, preparations, all will be to no avail unless you come and bless us now. Spirit of God, descend upon this gathering. We thank you for the blessed comforter and the paraclete and the one, O God, that comes and speaks Christ to your souls. May he minister Christ to the heart of every soul in this building this morning. We think of those watching on, listening in also. Oh God, glorify your name. Speak truth to your hearts. Grant us your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the features of the book of Jonah that we must keep in mind is that it is somewhat unique in the realm of prophetic scriptures. Not totally unique, but a little unique. Because it contains historical narrative. And we said last night of the importance of realizing that this is a real story of a real man and a real fish going to a real people who really repent. The historical purpose of the book is, is very, very clear. And I suppose Jeremiah somewhat also has these uh, interesting historical details in the midst of the prophetic scriptures. But as a book of prophecy, we must remember that it was given by Jonah to God's people. In some sense, it's autobiographical, but it's a part of prophetic scripture given by God to his people that the people would hear the word of Jonah and address their own problems. It's a word to the people of God. And so as such, it is a book of Revelation. Yes, a a fascinating story, an interesting story, but it's a book addressed to God's people. And as such, The primary subject of the book is not Jonah, but is God himself. And as we study this book, we've got to keep that in our minds at all times. We're going to look at the character of Jonah. We're going to see things about his life. But as we do so, we must remember that he's communicating this information about himself for the purpose that God's people would know their gods. They would discern what God is like, and they would see themselves in relationship to that glorious God. And so God is the main subject. The God, as you saw last night, who sees, who speaks, who sends, and in mercy spares the sinner. You see, Jonah and the book opens with language that displays the authority of God. God is over the nations, not just over Israel, but over Assyria, represented by the city of Nineveh. Nations that are held accountable. God who determines the rights and the wrongs of these nations. He's over the nations. He's over every creature. He's over the fish in the sea. 
but he's also over a creature like Jonah. And he comes in verse number 2 and says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh. It's a display of God's sovereign authority. It's not suggesting. I had to learn that as a parent. There's a way to ask something of your children that is suggestive and gives them an opportunity to say, well, maybe not. And you might go to them and say, in a gracious spirit, it's probably time for you to clean your room. And they may respond, well, maybe so, but maybe not also. That's not the way that God deals with Jonah. It's not suggestive. It is directive. Jonah, arise and go. His authority, and yet Jonah rebels. He may well be alone in this regard in Old Testament history. Again, it's fascinating to, to study the various prophets and servants of God. Some, like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Others, troubled with reluctance, like Moses or, or Jeremiah. But perhaps Jonah is unique in his own rebellion against the Lord. You need some background as to why that's the case. Again, Hugh Martin's a very helpful commentary on uh, Jonah, and he highlights Jonah's unique calling. He says this, He, uh, the implication being uniquely, was sent to a Gentile city. In fact, he was sent to the most renowned city of Havenden, then on the face of the earth. He alone of all God's prophets had such a commission assigned to him. His was a most extraordinary calling. And it was. And before we're too hard on Jonah, we should keep that in mind. His calling is like none other. He is, again, likely a contemporary of prophets like, like Amos, a pre-exilic prophet, coming just on the heels of the ministry of Elisha, a Jewish prophet, a man who, who knew the Lord and was able to discern the word of the Lord. I, I turned your attention last night back to 2 Kings 14. I want to do so again right now. 2 Kings chapter 14. We have the record of Elisha's death in 2 Kings 13. And then Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings 14 in verse number 25. Now, I draw this to your attention because we're trying to understand something of the background and the nature of Jonah. Again, he's coming on the heels of Elisha. I wonder, is it possible that he's part of the schools, the prophets, learning, as you like, from one to generation to another, from Elijah to Elisha, and now Jonah's part of that legacy coming on the heels of these great and godly men. He, he comes to know the Lord, and yet he's got this unique and challenging commission later on in his ministry when it comes to the time of going to Nineveh. But early on in his ministry, you have the record here in verse number 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 in one years. Jeroboam. The second Jeroboam, again the first one was the one who made Israel sin. And this is the second Jeroboam. He's the son of Joash or Jehoash. And he's the king of Israel. And he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. But look what it says in verse 25. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain. Again, you've got to understand what's happening here. If you look at verse number 26, it says there, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. Now, the commentators would suggest to us 
that this description is likely true of the reign of Jehoash, or Joash, the father of this Jeroboam. And what's happening in that reign is the Assyrians have come in and invaded the land, and they've, they've taken ground from Israel. And the people of God have known much affliction at the hand of the Syrians. Now, the description here in verse number 26 is, again, not easy for us to understand. There was not any shut up nor any left. Now, that refers to a warning of God back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where it says there, For the Lord shall judge his people. And having judged his people, he will then repent himself for his servants when he seeth their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. That's Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. The language here is of the defenselessness of the people of God. They have no garrison, none shut up, no protection, none left to help. There's no defense, no security. The people of God are afflicted and are marked by tremendous vulnerability. God sees that. He brings judgment through the Syrians. He sees the vulnerability of his people. And then now, in the reign of Jeroboam II, he then restores the coast of Israel. Now, Jeroboam is a wicked king. He does not depart from the sins of Jeroboam I. And yet, in his reign, God, in his mercy, allows the recovery of some of these territories that the Syrians have captured. That's the kindness of God, the mercy of God, the undeserved favor of God in the reign of Jeroboam II. But what does this mercy come in fulfillment of? Well, verse 25. What to say there? He gets the recovery of these lands according to the word of the Lord God of Israel which he spake by the hand of his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath, Hefer. Just think for a moment. The land is marked by tremendous apostasy and declension. There's a wicked king. The Syrians are all around them. And yet God, in his mercy, allows them to recover some territories. And that's a fulfillment of the words of Jonah, the prophet. What does that tell us? Jonah had direct revelation of the mercy and the kindness of God. And he was appointed by God to know that truth and then to preach that truth. And more than that, he saw that truth coming to pass in his own ministry. He said, it's going to happen. And it did happen. He had direct and personal awareness of the mercy of the Lord. I think that context is important. Because when you come to see the wrestling that Jonah has with God's mercy, it's not an abstract matter. He knew the mercy of God personally. And despite knowing the mercy of God, he was reluctant for that mercy to be shown toward the Ninevites. Yes, it's okay for God to show mercy to his own people. When it comes to the Ninevites, there's where Jonah has the trouble. And so with that context in mind, we then see really in chapter 1 of Jonah, where we're seeing Jonah's really personal interaction with his God. I don't want to think of that subject today. Jonah and his God. Do you know something, folks? God is. Those two words don't require anything else. 
It's a sentence in itself. God is. And God is today. Uh, You may wrestle with that in your own imagination. You may think about that and debate that. But there is no discussion. God is. And the issue is, where do you stand in relationship to that God? What is your attitude to that God? What are your actions with regards to that God? God is, so what about you? And that's what Jonah is confronting here in this first chapter. I have two things to leave with you this morning. First of all, I want to notice with you how Jonah is confronted with God's authority. I've already suggested that, and I will see more of that now. Jonah confronted with God's authority. Verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. What is, first of all, Jonah's reaction to God's authority? Jonah's reaction to God's authority. Well, I want to focus your minds upon the end of verse number 3, where it says, He goes with them unto Tarshish. And here's the, here's the important reference. From the presence of the Lord. You want to understand what Jonah's about right now? You've got to understand that phrase. The presence of the Lord. Jonah himself, as he speaks to the mariners in verse number 10, they account that he fled from the presence of the Lord. This is something that's important. You've got to recognize this. Now, we are not right if we charge Jonah here with having some very bad theology regarding the omnipresence of God. I don't think for one second Jonah is confused regarding Psalm 139. Whether can I go from thy spirit or whether shall I flee from thy presence? The answer is nowhere. I don't think Jonah has suddenly become atheistic in his mindset. Or he's saying to himself, well, I can go somewhere where God is not. I don't believe that for a second. I don't believe Jonah has dispensed with this doctrine of God. He still says in verse number 9, I am an Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. He hasn't given up on God's. So what does it mean when it says he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Well, again, this is interesting. At least I think it is. The word for presence here is the same word that's used in verse number 2 for before me. It's the idea of being before the face of God. We saw that last night, the sins of Nineveh, they're rising up before God's face. And so Jonah is now desiring to Get away from before God's face. Now, why is that important? Because the language of being before the face of God is a particular way to denote the work of the prophet of God. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 17, please. 1 Kings 17. I've mentioned to you already that Jonah is following after the ministry of Elijah and then Elisha. And what you should note is that in their ministries, they both understood what it was to be a prophet of God. 1 Kings chapter 17, the verse number 1. Of course, this is the announcement of Elijah on the scene of human history in the reign of Ahab. And it says there, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, and here's the reference, Before whom I stand. In the Hebrew, the very same word used with regards to the presence of the Lord in Jonah chapter 1. 
See, Elijah understands something. He's a prophet of God. And where does he get the word from God? In communion with God. In fellowship with God. He gets before God's face and God speaks his word to him, which Elijah then shares in the times of Ahab. He's a prophet before the face of God. You see the same over in chapter 18 and the verse number 15. Again, another description of Elijah. And Elijah said, As the Lord God of hosts, as the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand. Very same concept. And then 2 Kings chapter 3, and the verse number 14, as Elisha takes on the mantle from Elijah, ministering in his room instead. Verse 14, and Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand. Stand. So when you see that, and I trust understand that, and I convince your minds, and you turn back to Jonah chapter 2, you then understand what is the burden of Jonah? It's not to run away from the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. It is to get away from his work as prophet. Lord God, I'll bring a word in the reign of Jeroboam II. But if you're calling me to be a prophet and go to Nineveh, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm leaving my rule and my office. I want nothing of that. And thus, I want to leave the presence of God in my role as a prophet of God. That's what this is all about. Jonah is seeking to escape his prophetic duty. How does that go for him? It's completely futile. Of course it is. God's hand's upon him. It's a futile exercise. But yet he still continues. You see, note his activity in this. Again, we're thinking about his, his rejection or his reaction to God's authority. Note his activity. That's described for us in verse number 3. Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. Again, various ideas where Tarshish is. Some people think here, other people think there. It's not that important, really. The point is this. Nineveh is to the east. Tarshish is towards the west. Again, one writer in Jonah has the title of the book, Anywhere But Nineveh. That's pretty much it. Go in the complete opposite direction. But note how Jonah describes his own situation. Jonah rose up and went down. Again, there's various ideas. Is he going from higher ground to, to lower ground at sea level? Is that what's described here? Mountainous territory down to the seaside? Is it north to south? Again, hard to be definite on those things, but one thing is certain. The Bible used the language of going down in a negative way. You go down when you go away from the Lord. And when you go away from the Lord, you go down. These things always come together. Remember when Joseph is reigning in Egypt? Jacob had to be encouraged to go down. It says, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt. Or Isaiah 31, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Going down. That's what Jonah's doing. I wonder what direction your compass is pointing in your life at this present time. Just think about it. Are you heading in a way that's going down? 
away from obedience to God's will. Anything you can. You don't want to go to higher ground. You don't want to meet the Lord. You want to get away and you're going down. And you must be honest today. In the map of your life, you know you're going in the wrong direction. Jonah's activity. But note also the opportunity here. Again, this is his, this is his reaction to God's authority. And we see his activity and we see his opportunity. Because when he goes down to Joppa, what's he find? He found a ship going to Tarshish. And more than that, not only is there a boat there, there's room aboard that boat. Surely Jonah could see the providence of God in this. I must be doing the right thing. If God didn't want me to do this, there'd be no boat here and no room in the boat. Surely the door would close in my face. But sure, an open door. I must be going the right way before God. Young people, you always need to be guided regarding decisions. How do you know God's will for your life? And rightly understood, there are those who will tell you providence is a helpful guide to know God's will. God does open doors. Doors that are effectual doors, open for the ministry. Yes, there are ways in which God guides us by opening doors. But providence is no infallible rule of God's will. You can have disobedience to God's will, and yet providence allowing you to walk in that disobedience. Do not use providence to govern your actions as to what is right and wrong. The only true guide for your conduct is the very Word of God. That is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. You know, perhaps you're going down today, and truth be told, you find sin very, very easy. There's been no barriers, no obstacles. The things your parents warned you about haven't come past. They, they, they warned you, if you do this, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen. And none of those things have happened. And you've thought to yourself, going down's a good way. I'll just keep on going down because there's nothing stopping me from going down. It's a fearful thing. Sin can be easy to your unsaved soul. Do not presume that's easiness, that it's the right way. So we see Jonah in his reaction. He's confronted with God's authority and yet acts irrationally. You've got to look at Jonah and say, what are you thinking? Do you believe you can get away from God that easily? And so see, please, secondly, the reason, the reason for, uh, again, this reaction. Why does he do this? I'm saying it's, it's irrational. But we can see, humanly speaking, there are several suggestions. Perhaps it was a difficult task. No perhaps about it, it was a difficult task. An arduous journey. You've got to go north out of Israel, hang a right, go across the wilderness, and eventually you get to Nineveh. It wasn't an easy way to go. Tough, arduous journey. To a great and wicked people who were foreign and had no concept of God, law, or sin. Put your hand up if you want that missionary task today. Tough journey, no airplanes. To people who don't know your God, who are wicked, and beyond that, who will likely put you to death. You're going to go there as an unpopular man with an unpopular message to a cruel city. Now, we can empathize with all of those things in terms of evangelism and in terms of mission. 
Perhaps again, there are some of you today and you're not doing a task for God because you understand it's difficult and dangerous. But let's again not be too hard upon Jonah regarding carnal fear. We're not told those are the reasons for why I didn't go. We're not told those things at all. Maybe true, but we're not told that. What we're told is his own words in chapter 4, verse 2. He gives his own explanation. We'll come back to this later on in the week. But chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. Oh, Jonah's going to tell us himself why he goes. We don't need to guess. And the reason he says is, For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Remember last night? Exodus chapter 32. When God reveals himself to Moses, he shows himself to be a God of loving kindness and mercy. Not treating people according to their iniquities, but showing mercy to them. God shows himself in that regard. And Jonah knows that when God sends him to Nineveh, that's the purpose. He goes there, we know the story. He goes there, he preaches, they repent. And Jonah says, exactly! I knew this would happen. That's why I didn't want to go in the first place. Why? Again, there there are some different ideas here. Some suggest that he feared that God's favor to Nineveh indicated that God was going to reject Israel. And therefore, he's, he's really loyal to his own. But in that time, we should understand that the blessing of God upon the nations depended upon the blessing of God to Israel. So, it doesn't seem to do just the whole idea. The idea, I think, is more this. He understood that in God giving mercy to the Ninevites, he was observing his judgment against the people of God for their iniquities and their apostasy. He's bringing judgment upon the Israelites, showing mercy to the Ninevites, and at the core of it all, Jonah did not want God to show mercy to this foreign nation. Again, we can discuss and debate all of the whys and wherefores, but one thing is very, very clear. We see Jonah, in response to God's authority, going in the wrong direction against the will of God, We may look at his ability, we may look at his opportunities and all of those things, but the problem ultimately arises out of a disagreement with God. Whatever the reasons, it is God's desire to show mercy to Nineveh, and Jonah, his mind is not in agreement with God. And dear, dear child of God, Your disobedience in a certain area of God's will comes down to the very same thing. You do not agree with God's will for your life. And dear unsaved soul, in a much broader sense, your general argument with God is the reason for your rebellion. You're not fighting with your parents, the church, or your pastors. You're fighting with God because you will not submit to God's will in your life. Jonah is dealing with the issue of God's authority. Turn, please, to Isaiah 55. You see, if we don't understand this in terms of disobedience, 
We will fail to perhaps deal with our own hearts. Isaiah 55. It's a very, very well-known portion of Scripture regarding the gospel offer and the invitation to come to the Lord. And verse 8, though, I believe, is often misused. It says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Uh, sometimes we use that verse to comfort someone in affliction. We say to them, you know, you're going through a, a tough time as a child of God, but you know, God's ways are not our ways, and we would prefer this, but God's ways are best. But, but in the direct context, and by the way, that's, that's true, but in the direct context, verse 8 follows verse 7, obviously, and it says there, let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. If we're going to repent of our sins, we've got to come to terms with the fact that our minds are against God, and our ways are against God, and the problem of our heart is we don't agree with God. We have a problem with God's will and God's thoughts for our lives. True for the prophet, true for the ungodly, True for us, when we go against God, we know better. God's way isn't the best way. So if these things are so, we're seeing Jonah's reaction and reason against the authority of God, what should our response be? What do we do when confronted with God's authority? Very simple. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's obvious. Jonah heard a direct word from God. He sees oh, this as a stupid, foolish prophet. God's speaking to him directly, and he disobeys. How could you do that? We don't hear God's voice directly. We have a more sure word. We have the word of God in the pages of Scripture guiding and directing our conduct. We have a direct word from God, a very particular direct word from God, and yet we still will question God's word. And we doubt God's word. You think of church life. Do I really have to be part of a biblically ordered church? Submitting to his oversight? Supporting his evangelism? Present as prayer meetings? Praying for one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens. Do I really have to be part of a church to walk with God? I can just walk with God in isolation. I don't really need church stuff in my life. You know, do you think Jonah's foolish? The spirit of Jonah is alive and present in the church today. There are many, and they have the very same idea. God wants this. I don't agree, so I'm going to do this. And we don't submit ourselves to the will of God. Because we presume that we know what's best for us when God says, this is best for you. Our brother Stuart mentioned the Bible class, and again this morning, the commandments to come to the Lord's table. Take, eat. Take, drink. I'm sorry, that's a pretty clear word. It's not unlike arise and go to Nineveh. Very direct, very specific, and yet we say to ourselves, nah, I don't need that. I've got to get lunch. You know, the, the roast's going to burn. I don't have time for this right now. You know, I, I know I'm being sarcastic and probably shouldn't be. But I trust the point comes home to you. Think of family life. Many of the challenges between 
husbands and wives and home life is because one party has a mind of God's will that's not God's will. There are very direct commands in the Word of God regarding the rules of husband and wife. And yet there's conflict and tension because the noise of this world outside comes into our homes and we think to ourselves, well, I quite like the will of the world more than the will of God. And therefore there's tension in the home. They don't submit to the will of God. Young people, you're involved in a relationship and you're confronted with the will of God. God says marriage is the only place for the enjoyment of such a relationship. And you say, really? Really? What harm are we going to do? No trouble here. You see how this comes about? Man believing that they know best. The spirit of Jonah is alive and kicking today. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Ah, but it's the best day for me to push my business. It's the day when I can, I can make overtime and I can, I, can, I, can, I can provide for my family. And I can give to missions. And I can do all these things. If I work on the Sabbath day, that's, that's not a big deal. What are we, what are we doing? We're again suggesting the same thing. Our will trumps God's will. And the spur of Jonah alive and kicking today. The authority of God. How do we deal with the authority of God? God is. How are you doing with God's authority in your life? He is sovereign. He reigns and He rules. But secondly, please note today Jonah's confrontation not only with God's authority, but again, coming back to your theme, his confrontation with God's mercy. Mankind is confronted with the authority of God. And by nature, we, like Adam, respond in rebellion. Our only hope is in the mercy of the marvelous mercy of God. Now back to Jonah chapter 1. Young people, remember? Children, I said, look out for the great things in this book. Well, verse 2, you've got the great city mentioned there. Verse 4 then, you have a great wind. And the same word is used also, by the way, in verse number 4 with the word mighty. Same word. Great city, great wind, mighty tempest. Verse 17 a great fish. A city, a wind, a storm, and a fish. Who rules over all of these things? Who holds the authority over all of these things? The almighty, supreme God of heaven and earth. A God of infinite greatness. A God who sends winds and fish in order to show mercy to a city bent on rebellion against God. A God so great that no man can hope to escape the Lord's presence. Remember, Jonah wants an honorable discharge from the work of prophets. But the Lord has chosen Jonah and the great God uses great things to capture Jonah. But he does so not in wrath, but in kindness. The God who is great and uses great things is a God of remarkable kindness. Now here, I understand the unregenerate, unconverted mind will question this. In what way is it kind for God to impose his will on Jonah? That doesn't sound kind. The authoritative imposition of a will upon someone else, we don't like that in our lives. 
So how is it kind for God to impose his will on Jonah? Well, it's kind because, as we've seen already, God's will is best for Jonah. It's the kindness of God that brings Jonah back into the will of God. Our misery is generally due to our dispute with the kindness of God and His will. God's will is always best. Young people, learn that. Please learn that in your life. You will never suffer harm by doing God's will, not eternal harm. Oh yeah, you may lose a job, you may lose friends, but you'll suffer no real harm by doing the will of God. God is showing Jonah mercy here. First of all, mercy and patience. Mercy and patience. Jonah does suffer the price of trying to flee from the Lord. I don't think that storm was very nice. The ship's about to be broken up, verse number 4. The mariners, they were afraid. These are seafaring men, and they know a storm when they see it, and they're terrified. What an experience. But Jonah did not receive what he deserved. The storm awakened Jonah to his senses, but his life was spared. I know some of you from years gone by, and some of you went through a time of backsliding. You wandered far from God for a season. And you can stand here today and bear witness that as you tried to get away from God's work in your life, He spared you. He showed kindness to you. The mercy of God seen in His patience. God's mercy seen in pursuit. Jonah cannot hide from God. He goes down, and again, please note again, he goes down not only to Joppa, he goes down into the depths of the of the ship. And the language is used there. Verse number 5, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. And there he sleeps. Our time's marching on right now. I understand that. You wonder, how can he sleep? Has he got a clear conscience? Not likely. This is not the clear conscience sleep. This likely, I believe, it's just a suggestion. You can leave it if you want to. It's likely the sleep of someone who's exhausted in their rebellion against God. It is not easy for a child of God to fight against God, and it brings great mental exhaustion upon them. And he's sleeping there as an exhausted man, perhaps. But he's sleeping. It's Reformation Sunday. It's good to have a quote from Luther. Luther says this, Not only the ship, but the whole world becomes too small for Jonah. He can't get away from God. He can't escape the grasp of God. God finds Adam. God finds Saul kicking against the pricks, and God pursues Jonah. Prone to wonder how I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Jonah here in God's pursuit is revealed, verse 7. He's revealed by the use of a lot. Come and let us cast lots. The storm has come. The shipmaster is concerned. And he's revealed by lots. By chance. No chance. We know the verse, of course, Proverbs chapter 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is off the Lord. Maybe it's not through lots, but it's amazed me throughout ministry and life and parenthood how often in simple providences God exposes the sins of His people. Hidden sins are revealed in ways that you could never possibly imagine. I, uh, I didn't know that was coming that way. 
But God in his providence opens up the sins of his people as he pursues them in his grace and their sins are revealed. If that's happening to you right now, thank the Lord for his mercy. Your sins will surely find you out. He's revealed. He's also examined in this pursuit of God. He's examined. What you see, verse 6 and on the way down, and I've got to rush here. There are several questions issued. Verse 6, I'm going to paraphrase these. Verse 6, how can you sleep? Verse 8, who are you? How did you get here? Verse 10, why and what have you done? Verse 11, what shall we do to you? Now, isn't it interesting that those who question him are ungodly men? Again, God in his common grace can use ungodly men to bring you to your attention. To cause you to think about where you are with God. Again, it happens, isn't it, sometimes? You're behaving and work in an ungodly fashion. And somebody says to you in the, in the tea room, and you're sitting over a cup of tea, and they say to you, I thought you were a Christian. Don't, don't you go to that church in the term road? And yet you're saying that and doing this? And, and you, you resent that? You get angry in that? But it's God kindly opening your eyes to see your sin and your state. The mercy of God in his pursuit. And these questions come to bear upon Jonah. Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, say this mourner to Jonah. You know, if I can just very quickly spiritualize these questions for you today. How can you sleep? Some of you here are going through life and life is not easy. And God is using the storms of life to bring you to attention, and yet you're sleeping through those storms. How can you sleep, dear backsliding soul? How can you sleep, dear unsaved soul? The work of God all around you. God is working in your life, tossing you to and fro, and yet you sleep. The question comes, how can you sleep? Who are you? Verse 8. Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause evil upon us. What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? And what people art thou? Who are you? Who are you today? You're a man, a woman made in the image of God. A responsibility as an eternal soul to serve that God, to worship that God. That's who you are. And more than that, for most of you here, you're a soul being raised under the Word of God, sitting under preaching for year upon year upon year. That's who you are. You're someone raised in the things of God, and yet you're still sleeping in your sin. Who are you? You're some responsibility before God. What have you done? You know your sin. You know the nature of your sin today against God, against who God is, against His Word. You know that. What shall we do to you? Throw me over. That's what I deserve. Toss me into an eternal hell. I've shunned the grace and the mercy of God. The only thing I deserve is going to a lost eternity. Throw me over. These questions force Jonah to face reality, his accountability to God, and his attempts to run from God. You see, as Jonah is revealed and examined, we see a man who is not spiritually healthy. He's marked by prayerlessness, a polytheistic, idolatrous sailor tells him to pray. Verse number six, call upon thy God. He's not doing that. He's not praying. He's not before God. We're not told why he slept, really. We're not told why he's not praying, but he's not praying. You see, there are today pagans in their troubles, and they pray to God, but we, the Lord's people, persist and sleep in prayerlessness. 
and purposelessness. You know what question he didn't answer? See verse number 8. What is thine occupation? No answer. Suggestion perhaps in the presence of the Lord in verse number 10. But he does not directly say, I'm a prophet of the Most High God. He's lost his purpose. And you know, perhaps you're here today, dear child of God, and you've lost all sense of purpose. You're examined today. God's coming in pursuit of you in mercy, and you've lost your purpose. Once upon a time, you were zealous. You went to that school as a teacher, and you knew, I'm a Christian school teacher, and I'm going to serve God in this place. Or whatever your job may be, you had a clear purpose in your mind. I'm a Christian husband, a Christian wife, a Christian father, a Christian mother, a Christian church member. Whatever it might be, you understood your purpose, but you've lost your way. And if you're asked in the house or you're asked in the public square, who are you and what do you do? The last thing you're going to say to them is, I'm a servant of the Most High God. It's Jonah here. God pursues him. Reveals him, examines him, and exposes his sin heart at this time. A man without prayer and a man without purpose. Is that you today? Now God's mercy is seen, isn't it? In his patience, in his pursuit, and finally we close today in his preparation. Verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah's desire to sink in the deepest darkness. He's cast into the sea. You know, by the way, do you think Jonah expected a fish to come along? Kids, honestly, you know the story. You're kind of waiting for the story to come next. The fish is going to come and swoop him up and all's good. He has no expectation of a fish rescuing him at this time. He's undone. He's profoundly aware, I believe, of his guilt before God. And we're going to see that in chapter 2. He recognizes he's rebelled against God and he's lost his purpose. These mariners have exposed his heart before God. But God has prepared a fish. The God who governs Elijah's ravens and Daniel's lions governs Jonah's fish. The God who knows all things in advance, loving and knowing his wayward prophet, has that fish at the right place, at the right time, in the mercy of God. Jonah is clearly a type of Christ. We'll come to that later on. But right now, please just consider this fish as something prepared by God to show his mercy to a rebel. The fish is the vehicle of God's mercy. It's not the only thing God prepared. God Prepared in the days of Noah an ark. First Peter 3, verse 20, in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing. A vehicle of God's mercy. Rescuing souls from the wrath of God. Hebrews chapter 10. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. A fish, an ark a Messiah, a Christ of God. See, when our sin comes, the only place of refuge is trusting in God's prepared place of mercy. For us today, not a fish, but the Christ of God. Recognizing we deserve to be cast into the deepest, darkest dungeon of hell, God sent His Son, 
who comes and sweeps us as we plummet towards hell. He sweeps us up in his mercy. And we're safe there. We're safe there. Where are you today? Where do you put yourself in this? God's authority and God's mercy. Are you going down and down and down and down? May God draw your sin to your attention again today. Or are you at Jonah's place and you've been cast over the side of the sea and you're plummeting down? Your only hope is in the mercy of God in Christ. And like that wise man in the temple who would not lift up his eyes, he says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Let's close in prayer, please. Eternal God, we come before Thee in the recognition that Thou art, and that Thou art the rewarder of those that diligently seek Thee. We recognize that afresh today, and we realize, O God, that we must consider our own selves in light of Your being. You are sovereign over our lives, and You are our only hope of mercy. O Lord, wherever we are today, whatever the situation in this building, I pray that in your grace you would catch souls in Christ today. Rescue them from their sin and from their rebellion. Catch them in your grace and in your mercy. Oh God, I pray for some, and they've got to be honest today. They're on their way on a ship to Tarshish, away from God's purpose in their lives. Oh God, deliver them, we pray. Show mercy and patience. Pursue them and bring them into Christ. We look to Thee. Bless this day. Thank You the Sabbath day. Help us to honor it and hallow it. May we call it a delight. Come back to Your house later on in Thy will. Oh Lord, may Your blessing rest and abide upon us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.